Father, we're asking that your spirit would find access to our hearts this morning. We're asking that that truth would settle in deeply, that that your word would be clear to us, and that it, it wouldn't just be theoretical, but that we could walk out of here transformed because of who you are. Thank you for your incredible love for us. Thank you for pouring out your spirit in this place. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. His name was Simeon, and he was on a mission. He got a ladder, and he went to this pillar that had already been erected, and he he climbed up the ladder onto the top of this pillar. And on the top of this pillar, there was a platform there. And Simeon sat there on the platform. He kneeled there on the platform. Sometimes he stood there on the platform with his arms outstretched. See, Simeon wanted to be holy, and so he stayed there on that 10-foot platform, but, but people came from all over, and they got kind of close to him. And so, you know what Simeon did? He built a higher platform. He built a 50-foot pillar and put on the top of it a platform on which he lived for 37 years. He started this in the year 423. Simeon of uh, Saint Simeon, they now call him, of Stylite. You might have heard a little bit about him before, or maybe you haven't, but for 37 years, people would flock to watch this holy man. He was trying to stay as far away as he could from the world. He was trying to make sure that nothing came too close to him that would defile him. And so he lived for 37 years on a raised platform over in what I believe is modern-day Turkey. What is holiness anyway? Here's a a, a picture of a painting that was was done of of Simeon. There he is, meditating in his uh, platform. And the the fascinating thing is that this so inspired people that there became what was known as the Order of the Stylites. After him, they came and they built their own pillars. And pretty soon he had a whole congregation of people that were living on their pillars, working so hard to make sure that they were holy. And he became a saint because of that. People, that means, can go and they can pray to him and hopefully find some of that excess of grace that is from his righteous life that could be a beneficial to their lives. I want you to turn in your Bible with me uh, to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14, we've been reading through the three angels' messages. And, and here we find the opposite of holiness. Revelation chapter 14 and verse Nine, we're in the third angel's message. Now, we've been going through the three angel's messages for some time, and we've seen that there are three angels that come consecutively, and the overarching theme is for every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, and it is the everlasting gospel, the good news, which is not good advice. It is the news of what Jesus has accomplished for us, and that will change everything in our lives. But we're on the third angel's message, and we are looking at Revelation 14 and verse 9. It says, The third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast. Last week we talked about worship. If you were here, did you uh, experience worship this past week? I hope, I hope that you've been worshiping or recognizing what true worship was over the past week. Uh, to break it into you that weren't here last week, you've been worshiping every conscious moment of every day of your life. The question is, what have you been worshiping? And last week we saw that 
most things we'll worship will eat us alive. And Jesus said, hey, if you are following the doctrines of the commandments of men rather than the commandments of God, then you're not really worshiping. But if you're really loving, if you're really truly loving others the way that you love yourself, then you are participating in worship. And there's a lot of practical stuff on that. But this goes on to say, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand. Now this is, again, reminding us of that crisis that takes place in Revelation chapter 13 where the land beast, represented as the United States of America, begins to form this religious and political power that ends up forcing people to worship according to the way that apostate Protestantism wants them to worship. But we're not going to focus in on the details of what that sign and symbol might look like as far as the, the mark of the beast. Uh, but we are going to look at this word mark this morning. I want you to look at what is in the uh, Strong's Dictionary. And you can easily get a Strong's Concordance. You can look online for this and you can find uh, the definitions for these words. This is the word for mark. In the Greek, it's karagma, okay? which is from the the Greek word 5482, which we're going to see that's important because there's another word etymologically that's associated very closely with it that we'll look at next. But it can mean a scratch or an etching, a stamp as a badge of servitude. This, This was sometimes used in Greek for branding your cattle. This is my cow. This was also could be used for a sculpted figure, a statue, a graven image, or a mark. Now, this word is associated, interestingly enough, with the uh, word character, okay? So, let's see if we can, this is the next word, character in Greek, okay? So, this isn't uh, our English word for character, but this is the word in Greek, character, which is a graver, the tool of a person, or by implication, an engraving. So, we kind of get this today in that, you can say that a, an actor in a movie is in character, right? They, they are pretending to be something in particular. Well, actually, an image, a graven image, was known as a character, a figure that stamped a, an exact copy. This is the idea of the word today. When we think of character, we tend to think of that person is of high moral character. But the ro- word originally for character was having to do with a graven image, which is pretty fascinating to see that this is what it boils down to in the end. That there's going to be some people who have a mark that is representative of the character of the beast. Now, that beast uh, is not one that you'd want to have as character. Think of Psalm 115, verse 8. It says that worship has an impact on us. What we worship changes who we are. It says, those who make them are like them, talking about graven images, so is everyone who trusts in them. Now, here's a question. So if I go and, and I take a piece of gold and I form it into an idol, I, I, I make that, the cast and I, I have this beautiful image, let's say of a, a, a frog that I'm going to worship. If I worship that long enough, will I turn into a frog? Will I turn into a frog? Well, the Bible says. <laughs> I don't think so. So is everyone, those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. What exactly is this talking about? What is the Bible meaning by that as we worship something, we become like it? What does it mean that by beholding, we're transformed? By looking, 
we are changed, what is it that we take on? We take on the character. You find that, that Israel, as they're worshiping these heathen gods who required appeasement, who required uh, them to, to go through sacrificing their own children, pretty soon they are taking on the character of these capricious and arbitrary gods. And that character becomes a part of them. What we focus on begins to become a part of us and how we behave, how we act in our lives. It transforms our character. Some people are worshiping the beast. In the Bible, in the end, there's people that are either worshiping the beast, who ultimately that's worshiping the dragon. But on the other hand, there are those who are worshiping another figure. They are worshiping the lamb. Now this word for character is used only once in the Bible. Remember, the, the, the cognate word kerygma is the word for mark. But the word character is used only once in the entire Bible. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says this, who being the brightness of his glory. Who's that talking about? Jesus. Being the brightness of the Father's glory and the express image of his person. That's the word in Greek for character from which we today get the word character. The express image of his person. And so just right at the outset today, I just want to to let you know that what I believe Revelation preeminently is concerned about is what is taking place with our character. Are we looking to the lamb, to the place that we are becoming lamb-like? Or are we so focused on the dragon that we are becoming dragon-like? So in 2 Thessalonians, it, it talks about how the dragon gets worship. And we've looked at this a little bit before, but just to remind you that the dragon doesn't just show up like a, a seven-headed monster. The, the beast doesn't just show up with, with all of his fire-breathing uh, evilness that he's portrayed in the book of Revelation. These are symbols that are, are to lead us to understand what this represents. But how does he operate? Notice what 2 Thessalonians 3-4 to says. The son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. You see, it's a character battle that's going on in the end. And, and it doesn't really matter who's saying Jesus and who's saying Allah or who's saying these different things. What really it gets down to is the character of the Almighty God of the universe who is represented preeminently in Jesus Christ. This is the key thing in the end. And every false picture of God leads us to a false character in our own lives. It's broken down a little bit clearer here uh, in the, the uh, publication Review and Herald in 1896. Let's go to the next slide here. Okay, there we go. The enemy is working continually to supplant Jesus Christ in the human heart and to place his attributes in the human character, in the place of the attributes of God. See, Satan, all he wants is for us to think that we're worshiping God, think that we're following Christ, and in reality, we've got the attributes of the enemy inside of us. He wants to replace Jesus in our heart. He is working in order that selfishness may become worldwide and thus make of no effect the mission and work of Christ. His goal is to, to get his characteristic of selfishness. I will ascend. I will make myself like the Most High. 
that he will get us to buy into that same system. That we will be buy into the system of making ourselves great. Christ came into the world to bring back to the character of God to man and to retrace on the human soul the divine image. Jesus came so that you and I could see how beautiful God's character is. And that that character could be retraced into my heart, your heart, and be shining out through our actions into the lives of people around us. Satan was determined to efface the image of God from the human posterity and to trace his own image upon the soul in place of the divine image. Though unable to expel God from his throne. I mean, Satan can't go up to heaven, right, and say, okay, God, move out of the way. I'm going to have people worship me. He doesn't physically occupy God's throne. He can't physically take over God's temple. He can't go and take his place. But what he can do is he can get you to think that you're worshiping God. He can get me to think that I'm worshiping God when in actuality I'm worshiping something that has to do with his attributes rather than God's attributes. Satan has charged God with satanic attributes and has claimed the attributes of God as his own. I mean, just think about Simeon, the stylite, as he's sitting up there and he's far removed from people. And and this is to, to show what holiness is like. I just have to remove myself as far away, get as far away from you as possible. And then, then I could be holy because I just don't want to come in contact with sinners. I don't want to come too close to you. What picture of God is that operating on? It's a picture of God who stays as far away as possible, who doesn't come close to us. It's a picture of a God who has to be His favor has to be one, that we have to convince him to like us. But the good news is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He already wants to be with you. He's already chosen you from eternity past. He loves you. That's the truth of who God is. And it's so important that we don't attribute God with the characteristics of Satan. What is God's character truly like? It goes on to say this. He is a deceiver, and through his serpentine sharpness, through his crooked practices, he has drawn to himself the homage which man should have given to God and has planted his satanic throne between human worshiper and the divine father. And we see this happening so clearly in the dark ages where it was suddenly the fact that, hey, you can't come straight to Jesus and confess your sins. You've got to come to the priest and confess to him. I remember one day being out here in the parking lot, and we were doing a parking lot sale, and a lady came up to me, and Malin and I actually were there and and collecting the money, and and she's talking to him, and and suddenly he's like, well, this is our pastor. She looks at me, she's like, you're a pastor? I could never confess my sins to you. It's like, good, I'm glad to hear that. (laughs) Just confess them to Jesus. I'd prefer that you wouldn't bring them to me, actually. Or you find in the dark ages that people are are having to to pay a certain amount to the church, and that'll, that'll Give them a little less time in purgatory. Is that what God's like? They would whip themselves. They would go on pilgrimages. They have to earn God's favor. But what about today? Are the ways in which today I feel like, hey, I have to go through these certain steps in order to get God to accept me. I have to do this or else He won't accept me. Or is the reality that God has already extended Himself and what He's hoping is, that his goodness will lead me to repentance, will cause me to turn away from my sin because he's so good that he's been chasing after me every day of my life. Satan will see in an apostate race his masterpiece of evil, 
men who reflect his own image. In the end, there's going to be those who have the mark of Satan's character, and there's going to be those that have the mark of the Lamb. There's going to be those who are reflecting the dragon, and there's going to be those who are reflecting the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. I want to be lamb-like. How about you? I want to, to realize that, that, that the way up is actually down. The way up is to serve, to love, to give, to be there for people no matter what they're going through. So it's helpful for me uh, to unpack this a little bit, but let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It, it gives us this picture that the longer we look at Jesus, that the Holy Spirit does something in our heart. The more that we recognize who God's character, what his character is like in Christ. You know, Jesus said to his disciples, they're like, hey, could you show us the Father? We really want to see what, is, what does God look like? And he says, well, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And what is he talking about? Does is the Father have, have human characteristics? Does he have a, a human face? No, he's talking about what the Father's character is like, was revealed throughout his life. When Moses said, show me your glory, how did God reveal himself to Moses? He revealed his character to him. He said, I'm the God loving and gracious, merciful, abounding in steadfast love. This is who I am. So 2 Corinthians says this, but we all with unveiled face, as, as the deception is, is taken away from our face and we're, we begin to see reality clearly, we begin to see what God is truly like, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. You see, there's not just the mark in Revelation, but there's also what else in Revelation? There's the mark of the beast, and there's those who have the seal of God. In Revelation chapter 7, it says that they have the seal of God on their foreheads. In Revelation chapter 14, it says they have the name of God in their foreheads. Name representing character. They have fully assented to who this God is. And they, it says in Revelation 14, they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. And they just, they're so fixated on Jesus. And, and they recognize what God is like. That that's all they can think about. And they follow Him in, in being there for people who are in need. So, in Ephesians, actually, we find the, uh, the seal of God broken down the most clearly. So the word seal is used a few times in the Gospels, and it's used uh, primarily to talk about, when it's talking about a person, it's used to talk about the Father setting his seal on Jesus. And Jesus says that the Father has set his seal upon me. Jesus had the seal of God. He had his character represented in his own life. But Paul uses the word three different times, and one of the times is in 2 Corinthians, but twice he uses it in Ephesians. So today, we're going to look at what does that seal of God look like? That's really important to know, isn't it? It's really important to, to not have the mark of the beast. And, and so often, we're, we're thinking about so many other things besides what the seal of God really entails. And now there are signs and symbols of the mark of the beast and the, the, the seal of God, and we'll look at that uh, in coming weeks. But for today, we want to look at what the Bible actually says about how we are sealed. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13, it says, In him you also trusted. Now, now this, is, this is a beautiful uh, statement coming after Ephesians has already broken down in chapter 1 and verse 4 who we're trusting. Because he says, 
you were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world, that you should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He, he already predestined you. He already chose you for adoption in the Beloved. He's already chosen you, Paul says. And that's something that leads us to trust what His character is like. In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel, the good news of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Where does the sealing come from? It's the Holy Spirit that does the sealing work, that settles us into this truth, that helps us to come in contact with truth in such a way that our character is sealed for the very end time crisis. So, uh, you know, in John chapter 14 to 16, Jesus made it really clear what the Holy Spirit is all about. He calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of truth. You know, sometimes, and I've often done this, I've, I've prayed for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and pleaded with God to give me the Holy Spirit. And I think that I thought that maybe something magical will happen where there's this sudden transformation in me. But the picture that you get from the Bible is that He's the Spirit of truth. That as I'm praying and asking God to pour out the Holy Spirit on me, He begins to open my mind to help me to see more clearly the truth. And what truth is so vitally important in the end It's who is God. The way, the truth, and life. Have I come to recognize who He is? And as that truth comes to light, you look at how John 16 goes on to to describe how Jesus says, I'm going away, and it's good for you that I'm going away, because if I don't go away, I wouldn't send the Helper. But because I'm going away, I'm sending you the Helper, and He'll convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And then He goes on to describe how the Spirit will lead you into all truth, and He'll talk about me. He'll manifest who I am and reveal that to your minds clearly. And then he goes all the way to say, when I go to heaven, and this is really, I believe, a picture of what the Holy Spirit wants to unpack for you. He said, when I go to heaven, in John 16, I am not going to plead with the Father for you because the Father himself loves you. He, he already loves you. He I don't have to go there and twist his arm to be good to you. You see, the, the Father was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. This is, we're in this together. I have come for you because God loves you. He's the one who is chasing after you. The Holy Spirit wants to seal us in the truth of who God is. Just think about it for just a second. If you think about Satan, does Satan know that God is real? James says that the demons, they believe and they tremble. Uh, Does Satan believe that Jesus is coming back soon? Revelation chapter 12 verse 17 says, He knows that he has but a short time, so he goes out with great wrath against those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. Satan knows that Jesus is coming again soon. He knows that Jesus is the divine Son of God. He knows there's a trinity. He knows these facts about God. But the fact is that he doesn't really believe that God loves. He believes that God is selfish, that he's arbitrary, that he's come up with these rules and laws that that shouldn't be the way that the universe runs. And he doesn't trust God. So you and I can, can understand uh, what the right day to worship on is, that Jesus is coming again soon. We can understand all of these things and yet miss what is most crucial to understand, and that is, who is this God? 
I need to come to know him for myself. And, and Ephesians uh, unpacks this a little bit because you notice just a few verses later in Ephesians 1 verse 17, Paul goes on to say this, I keep asking that God, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the Spirit. Notice, this is what the Spirit comes to do, of wisdom and revelation, so that you may know him better. Isn't that awesome? He says, I want the Spirit to come to you so that, that you know who the Father is. You know that you have a good Father who's crazy about you, who loves you, who treats you constantly in such a way that your good is held above his good. He's self-sacrificing in the way that he loves you. This reality has to change us from the inside out as we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 7 describes what this God is like. It says that in the ages to come, he, being the Father, might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Throughout the coming ages, God is going to be displaying in you saying, hey, look at these people. These people that were in Templeton, look at, look at how much I love them, that I gave myself for them in Christ, that look at my kindness. And throughout eternity, we will trust and love this God, and we won't ever want to rebel because of what he did for you, what he did for me, what he did for Mark, how he's chased me down when I've been trying to run from him, that infinite God of love. Then it goes on in Ephesians. Uh, we'll go to chapter 4 where, again, it's getting close to, to reminding us of the uh, sealing of God, but it gives us a picture uh, of what the Holy Spirit is going to do in our lives. It says that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. We're not going to be listening to this crazy story or this thing or going this way and that, but we're going to be rooted and grounded in the love of God by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Verse 15 continues, but speaking the truth in love. The Holy Spirit comes and he brings the truth, the truth about God's love to us. And as that settles into our minds, it goes on to say, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. You know, truth, it's like it's like like fertilizer. It causes us to grow in the right direction to become more and more and more and more like Jesus. Transforming our character as we fix our eyes on the character of this incredible God goes on, uh, we'll look now at uh, some of the other things that are unpacked about what the ceiling looks like. You know, if, if Ephesians chapter 4 to 6 didn't come after chapters 1 to, to 3, it would be pretty discouraging. Because look at some of the things it goes on to say now. First of all, it's told us that, hey, you are adopted in him. You're chosen from before the foundation of the world. And Ephesians 2, we didn't even look at where it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, so that nobody will boast. And then he goes on to tell us this. Well, verse 25 says, Don't lie, because we're members of each other. And when you lie to somebody, you're totally misrepresenting the character of God. Don't stay angry with people, verse 26. Don't steal, verse 28. And here's the thing, verse 28 continues, work so you can give to those in need. Get out and work so that you can have more to be able to give. Now if I just read through these things as an arbitrary list of commands, like okay, God just doesn't want me to steal because he doesn't want me having more than I, I already have. 
God doesn't want me to lie just just because he's arbitrary. Or I can recognize that this is who God is. Think of it this way. If you go to uh, the doctor and the doctor tells you, okay, you sprained your ankle and what I need you to do is really important. I want you to stay off your ankle for three weeks. I'm going to give you crutches. You need to stay on those crutches for three weeks. And I don't want you to put any weight on it. And after that, I'm going to have you go to the physical therapist and he's going to give you some good exercises for your ankle and you're going to begin to move it. When I hear those things, I'm going to follow his instructions. Why? He took the Hippocratic Oath and I'm going to trust that he wants what's best for me. When God gives us commands, it's not so that we can earn his favor, so that we can find our way to heaven, so that we can somehow get into right standing with him. The point of the commandments is that this is what is healing for your life. This is what is transformative for your life. And he's inviting us to a spirit-empowered life of having his character revealed in our character. Ephesians 4, 31-32 says, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. I think it was last week that I, or maybe the week before, that I talked about some of my days that I'm pretty ashamed of. Um, Jordan played on, on the Armona football team, and uh, I wasn't known as a, a nice person to be around with the Armona football team, and I'm ashamed of that to this day because a lot of this stuff was a reality in my life. I was not a nice person to play football with. But God is transforming us day by day. He's not finished with me yet, and He's not finished with you yet. That's the incredible good news. And be kind to one another, tender hearted. Forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. You see, here's the thing. If, if I think that I have to do a certain amount of things, if I have to behave in a certain way in order to get God's forgiveness, then what happens when Joe comes along and Joe is, he's a total dirtbag and the way that he treats me is just totally unkind and he absolutely does not deserve my forgiveness. Am I going to treat him with grace? Am I going to treat him with kindness? No, because I have the characteristics, not of God, but of Satan, of the dragon, who is wrathful, who ultimately led people to believe that God wants us to think that we have to worship him or be tortured throughout endless ongoing ages, to be sustained by God so that we can writhe in pain throughout eternity, to somehow bring justice to God's righteous character. This is the picture that Satan wants us to believe about God, and it leads us to be wrathful to the people around us. When we believe that about God, we treat others the way that we believe God acts. Desire of Ages, talking about how we as representatives of Jesus should act. Page 353, it says, the servants of Christ are not to act out the dictates of the natural heart. I remember, it wasn't in this, this church, but in another church, in an elders meeting, where a guy got up and yelled at the board. He literally stood up and was yelling at people in the meeting. And afterwards, rather than apologizing for it, he said, well, I don't believe that I'm going to be ever delivered from my temper. That's just the way that I am. Servants of Christ are not to act out the dictates of the natural heart. goes on to say this. Sorry. They need to have close communion with God, lest under provocation self rise up and they pour forth a torrent of words that are unbefitting 
that are not as dew or the still showers that refresh the withering plants. How often has that been the case in my life? You know, I'm right in this situation, and so I pour forth a bunch of words that simply are not healing, that they're not representative of the way that Jesus would treat people. And in the end, I mean, this is it. It's about our character. Everything that we believe. I believe that Jesus is coming again soon. I believe that the seventh-day Sabbath is absolutely essential for our salvation. But all of that has to lead me to a character that is lamb-like. And if it doesn't, what happened to the Pharisees? They believed the Messiah was coming soon. They believed that you should worship on the seventh-day Sabbath. And they were so passionate about it that they put Jesus on the cross and they were rushing to get him off the cross and in the grave so that they could go home and make sure that they stayed holy on the seventh-day Sabbath because you got to keep the seventh-day Sabbath holy, right? You see, it's not about the theological set of doctrines. It's about what that leads us to in our understanding of God and how that transforms my heart and your heart. The doctrines are true, but they're only of value if they lead me to a relationship with Jesus Christ that's transformative. goes on to say this, this is what Satan wants them to do, for these are his methods. It is the dragon that is wroth. It is the spirit of Satan that is revealed in anger and accusing. Whose character do I have? Whose character do I manifest? Whose character is it that the people around me are seeing? goes on to say, uh, actually, we'll jump back to Ephesians now. Sorry, Ephesians chapter 5, and we'll go to verse 1 here. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. You remember the idea of character is to, to become an imprint of the person, to become just like them. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. You know, my little girls, it's amazing to watch. They pick up things so quickly you wouldn't believe it. I mean, they'll laugh like we laugh, or they'll, they'll say things that we say. And where did you, oh yeah, I remember saying that, that's right. Be imitators of God as dear children. Fix your, your mind on them so that you're constantly thinking about, about God, and the more that you fix your eyes on Him, the more that you'll be transformed. And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and has given Himself for us. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. The love of God is to show, fill our souls that we're filled with light. This is a beautiful picture. And then Paul unpacks it in the rest of Ephesians in super practical ways. In Ephesians chapter, uh, well, 5.9, we just flew past it. We'll get this remote working. <laughs> Don't worry. Uh, but Ephesians 5.9 says that the, the fruit of the Spirit, it, part of that is in truth. Truth is an aspect of what the Spirit comes to reveal in our lives. But in verses 22 to 23, as Paul unpacks what the gospel should look like and what the seal of God should look like in our life, he focuses in, not just on a theoretical knowledge, but he's like, hey, your marriage is going to be impacted by this. You accept the gospel. You accept who he is. Your marriage will be transformed. Your marriage will be filled with self-sacrificing love. He says, submit, therefore, one to another. And husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church. Now, that's extreme. I mean, what has Jesus done for us? He came to this tiny speck of a planet. He served. He lived his life to give. And he died on the cross for us. And that's how I'm to love my wife. 
Do we really get that as Christians? That it's not just about some magical phrase that we say or set of beliefs that we believe, but it actually impacts our marriages. Because sadly, the divorce rate among Christians is pretty much the same as it is among non-Christians. We've got to grapple with, are we really being sealed by the Spirit of God? And then it goes on to say, children, obey your parents in the Lord. And I remember that we used to have worship and my dad would would point out this verse, Ephesians 6, and he'd like to read verses 1 to 3. And I'd be like, Mom, where's that verse in the Bible that, well, it goes on to say in verse 4, and fathers or, or parents, don't provoke your children to wrath, which I appreciate a lot more now. <laughs> parents, don't provoke your children to wrath. It gives this idea of like, hey, this is what your family's going to look like. As, as you receive the seal of God, this is, this is the family dynamics that you're going to experience as a family. You see, the gospel isn't just about a set of beliefs. It's about what Jesus has accomplished for us and that accepting that will transform our character. Then it goes on to bond servants and masters, how bond servants should serve their masters faithfully and masters should not mistreat they're bond servants. Paul is just dealing with a, a broken system, a broken world, and saying, hey, here's how to operate in the midst of that. Behave like a lamb. Follow Christ-like principles, even in the midst of all of this. Now let's backtrack to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to look in conclusion at these verses. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 to 19. This unpacks this beautiful picture of, of what I believe the seal of God looks like in our lives. It says that you being rooted and grounded in love. This, this is something that takes place. The seal of God takes place in our foreheads. It means that, that our thoughts are just totally grounded and rooted in God's love. So that when I'm feeling weak, where do I go for nourishment? Where do I pull up from in my roots? I pull up from the nourishment of the reality that God loves me more than His own existence. That he willingly went through hell on the cross for me so that I could have life. And as I fix my mind on a God who loves me that much, that he is gracious and merciful, abounding in loving kindness, I find strength to live the Christian life. And it goes on to say, this is Paul praying for them, that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height He's going every possible direction. He's saying, what is the the width, the length, the depth, the height? God's love supersedes anything you can possibly imagine, and and you cannot begin to come to an end of fathoming it. There is always more to experience of the love of God. To know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. Now recently, a pastor friend of mine on Twitter uh, put this verse in a way that, that helped me. Oh, sorry, I, I skipped the, the last part, the, the important part. To know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. As we know the love of God that's revealed in Christ, then what takes place? We are filled with all the fullness of God. The character of God will be re, rep, reproduced in us as we fix our minds on this truth of the incredible love of God. Well, a pastor friend of mine, Ty Gibson, wrote this recently on Twitter, and I thought it was a, a, a poignant way of summarizing this verse. It says, God is on a quest to take up all the intellectual and emotional space inside of you with his love. Just, just let that sink in for a second. He's, he's wanting you to, to know the heights, the depths, the length, the, the breadth, 
To know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. What he's saying is he wants for you to, everything is summed up in the love of God. When you're going about your day, that what holds you together, what, what keeps you going, is to know God's love for you. What enables you to treat that person with grace who's mistreating you? What enables you to reach out to that person in need? is the love of God. God is on a quest to take up all the intellectual and emotional space inside of you with his love. Crowding out all hatred and greed, selfishness and shame, insecurity and hurt. God is in the business of settling us into the truth of his love and it will begin to crowd out all the other things in our life, the selfishness, the shame, the greed, the hurt, the insecurity. We'll experience healing through the power of the mighty comforter, the Holy Spirit. Then it concludes by saying that you being rooted and grounded in love may be filled with all the fullness of God. So a practical illustration of this. Last week, uh, I was out at the Shepherds, and on Saturday night, they had their um, telescope out, or, or binoculars. Jeff was looking at, at the moon off in the distance, and it was fascinating to look at the moon, and suddenly it hit me. I was talking to him, and I said, wow, you know what? This reminds me of me. Reminds me of me. Because if you think about it, I don't know what your experience has been, but oftentimes, I get in the way of God. I'm not really shining very brightly. I'm not really walking in his love. And, and, and people are having a hard time sometimes coming in contact with Jesus and actually being able to see Jesus. Now, this is a moment that, that astronomers seek out as this incredibly glorious moment of a, a solar eclipse, right? But I don't want to be doing that in my life. I don't want darkness to be the result of my contact with people. The people say, oh, so he's a Seventh-day Adventist, so he's a Christian? Yeah, I don't want anything to do with that because I'm more like Satan than like Jesus. But uh, as you look in the night sky, you'll see different things taking place over uh, the, the course of, of a, a month. And I want to thank Jeff for these pictures. This is what you might notice. Sometimes the moon looks like with, with your naked eye. Just a, a new, new moon, a sliver of a moon. I don't know if that's a new moon for sure. I'm not sure if I'm using the right terms. But he, he had to break down a lot of things on email to me this week about what these pictures are. But they're incredible pictures. But, you know, that light begins to just reflect just a tiny little glimmer that, that people can begin to see, wow, God's love is like that. It begins to get fuller and fuller and fuller. The more that the moon is in that perfect spot that it is oriented to the sun to reflect back perfectly to you and I what, what the sun looks like. And it gets brighter and brighter and brighter, especially if you have a good telescope or camera. But sometimes there are things in our life that, that though we, we may have a really good picture of God, there may be some distractions in our life. Or there may be Things on the radio, things on the TV, things on the internet, things that are, are giving us this, these other pictures of, of how the world operates and what things really matter. And, and it clouds our own perception and our ability to reflect Jesus. is affected by that. Because day in and day out, you and I are worshiping something. And where, what has our attention has our worship. Does God have my attention and your attention as much as the rest of the world does? He wants to take up every space in us with his love until finally we come to that moment where you see this full moon in all of its incredible glory. But you know the moon, 
it's really dusty. It's just a, a big rock out there, and it's, it's got all these craters in it. It's got all, all these, this disfigurement. You see, when they land on the moon, they have to wear these suits. It's not really that hospitable of a place to be. But as you look up at the full moon in the sky, without, without looking at it as closely as we're able to here, it's just shining brightly. You just see the light of the sun reflected throughout the night. Did you know that the full moon, it, it's, it's the one time when the moon is up only during the night hours. And in the midst of the darkness of this world, you and I are called to shine brighter and brighter as we have our focus completely on Jesus. And as we fully allow His love to take up every nook and cranny of our emotions, our intellect, our strength, as He becomes all in all, as we daily take time in His Word to get to know Him as His infinite God of love, as we take time in prayer to talk to Him, to ask Him to fill us with the Holy Spirit, to ask Him to seal us with His character, then we're going to shine brightly. And Jesus says, let your light so shine that men may see your good works, and then they'll be led to glorify your Father in heaven. Then they'll be led to worship just like you do. Friends, it's time that we shine brightly. It's time that we allow His character to be reproduced in us. Not that, that we're going to ever look like the sun, but that we will reflect His glory as it shines more and more brightly in our own lives. I want to fix my eyes on the Lamb. How about you? I want to know His character. I want to recognize who God really is. And I want to allow God to remove any bit of falsehood in my understanding about who God is. Because He really is a good, good Father. Let's pray. God, thank You for who You are. Thank You for the infinite love that You have for us. Father, we just want to invite You to search our hearts and to show us the misconceptions we have about You. And the reason behind why we treat others the way that we do. Why we have the amount of compassion that we have for people. Lord, we long to be motivated by your love. We long to be sealed with the character of the Lamb. We want to follow Jesus wherever he goes. Help us to fix our eyes on you. We ask that your love would take up every nook and cranny of our hearts and minds that every bit of our strength would be dedicated to loving you. Because that's all that really matters. It's the only thing that can overcome all the craziness in this world. Lord, would you please imprint your character into our minds and hearts. We don't want to have the mark of the beast. We know that there's only going to be two sides in the end. Would you please transform us to be like the lamb. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.